Welcome to the podcast for 1776 Forward. We're the grassroots movement that's crowdsourcing activism for the cause of philosophical liberalism. Stand up. Speak out. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast for 1776 Forward. I'm Joya, and today I'm really excited that Ash Ryan is here on the call with me, and we're doing a follow-up on a video that I hope you might have seen, a video I did before with Adam and Chris that we, I at least, love to call the altruism grudge match. And in that video, I was taking a position of presenting problems that I see with Ayn Rand's presentation of altruism, specifically her definition of sacrifice, which as I presented in that video that I think is just empirically and factually wrong. And it sets up a binary of egoism versus altruism that to my thinking just doesn't match reality and doesn't match what human beings actually need to survive and thrive. But it's also my belief that as human beings, we're not just here to identify problems and sit around and whine, that the whole purpose of identifying a problem is to work on solving the problem. So I'm hoping that that's what we can start to do here today. And really, I see this as just what is the first of hopefully a series of conversations that even you in the audience can come and be a part of to do what I consider really solving this ethical problem of what ought to be the re proper relationship between the individual to the society. And we've talked in 1776 Forward, it's in our manifesto, I talk about having the values of both autonomy and community. That's one framework I have for thinking about how we want to integrate both of these values into our lives. But I'm really happy that Ash is here to talk help talk through these ideas with me. Some of you might've seen that Ash posted a really long series of comments on the original YouTube video. And if you haven't seen Ash's comments, it's, it's practically like an essay. It was, it was so remarkable what he wrote. So I'm glad that he's here, that we can just talk through some of the ideas that he expressed in those comments. And then maybe we could use that to start building off of things. And, and Ash, I'm really glad you're here because you were the person who told me once that you thought that uh, an even better definition of human beings is the problem solving animal as opposed to just the rational animal. And that's something the more I think about it, I think is 100% correct. So we'll start with there with the uh, problem solving animal. <laughs> Okay, sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Joy. I'm looking forward to it. So I just want to say too about um, my my comments on the altruism grudge match video. So you, uh, we had we had talked before uh, you and I just about this issue of altruism versus egoism and and sacrifice and um, some of the uh, you know maybe criticisms or um, that you had about that and. Uh, and I agree with you that I think that, you know, egoism and altruism is probably not the best model or framework to, to approach these issues with anymore. Um, so yeah, and then, so when you 
released that altruism grudge match video, you you uh, sent me the link and, and asked me for my thoughts on it. So I, I just posted those comments on YouTube. I don't know if I would describe them as an essay because they definitely don't have that much uh, structure to them. It was just kind of like my, you know, off the cuff thoughts off the top of my head. But uh, but yeah, they were they were longer than I intended. So so hopefully um, that gives us some um, material to kind of go over and discuss this uh, issue a little bit further today. But so you said you wanted to start out with talking about uh, human beings as the problem solving species. Yeah, maybe if you just even you you were the one who who suggested that to me once, and maybe we could even start there. And I will even say, even from my background as an English teacher, and in defense of the essay, that essay we learned really even just does mean to try. So I even think that it's it's the later stages of an essay when you really put forward the structured and you know well edited, crafted argument, but that a first essay really is just a, a try and a try at getting some important ideas out and putting them out on paper as a way to start thinking through them. And to me, this was a perfect example of what you did there, that it seemed that you just had this response. You you came up with these comments too, like really quickly. It just seemed like you must have been in the zone and it just flew out of you. So but it's a great opportunity, I think, to just have something out there and now we can start taking these ideas and seeing if they can be seeds that can lead to something else. But yeah, you can pick up with problem solving or if you wanted to just dive right into some of your thoughts about the relationship of the individual to society. I, I love how you talk about the spiral relationship of the individual to society. That was something that, that came out in what you wrote there. Yeah, well, that previous video, um, I think, gave me a lot of material to think about. So that was why I, I was able to write so much about it. So if anybody hasn't watched that one yet, probably go back and watch that one first. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely, the way I tend to approach all these kind of issues where people set up this sort of binary framework of looking at something is that usually there's some truth about on both sides. Because usually it's not that you know, unless they are really are, you know, like mutually contradictory positions, usually they're just kind of like opposite ends of a pole that like form a spectrum. And, um, and I try to take a perspective that uh, integrates a whole range of that perspective of that, uh, of that spectrum. So as, so, and that's kind of where that spiral comes in. Cause I usually, I think what usually happens is there's sort of like a top down and a bottom up way of looking at it. Um, and I think that that is particularly useful maybe with regard to this discussion because, you know, what we're really talking about here is, is the relationship of the individual to society. And, uh, and you know, in a sense, you, you can look at it from either perspective and, and people do tend to look at it from one perspective or the other and say, well, either, you know, the individual is the primary thing and, and society is just this abstraction, um, but really it's just a, a, you know, kind of loose, conglomeration of individuals and, and um, you know, when, when they say society is an abstraction, what they mean by that is it isn't real. Like there's no such thing as society really. It's just a, it's just a term we used to talk about, a collection of individuals. Um, and on the other hand, there's people who talk about society in this very reified way of like, that's like the real primary reality and the individual is just like a part of, you know, as um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a cog in the machine of society or something like that, right? And and like a dispensable cog at that, you know, like one that, you know, is just replaceable by any other person that, you know, like 
the, the individual really doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, and I think both of those views are partly right and partly wrong and wrong in the sense of just incomplete because they're not recognizing the, the truth to the other aspect. And uh, so I, I don't know if that's a kind of a good place to, to uh, jump in if you have kind of any follow-ups on that. It's funny because as you outline your your common practice here of of trying to integrate both aspects, it's really funny. Chris Bush and I talk about we we have this joke that if we ever formally organize this whole project that and, and form some kind of company or organization out of it, that we have to call it both and enterprises, because yes. that has been the rule of thumb that has animated so much of our thinking precisely to what you were saying, that perhaps there are a few examples where there is some real polarity. Like I suppose the classic one is health, right? Like health versus poison. But even there, it's really health versus non-health because there are even situations where actual poison can be healthy for right. you. I, I always think well, of the, the Count of Monte Cristo example. That's always, to me, especially being the literature person, the signature example where that, you know, when you live in a 19th century novel and there is a possibility that someone could be out to poison you, you want to take poison on a daily basis so that you build up your tolerance. That is the healthy choice. But but so this, but I guess the health versus non-health would be almost an Aristotelian A versus non-A kind of example of, of a polarity where clearly we want health and we want to you know, completely dismiss anything that's non-health. But most of the things in life that we encounter, there really are two values. And what I see is that it seems that, that, that society, we often, almost like a pendulum, swing between each of them where one of them really gets a whole lot of emphasis. And then we kind of realize like, oh, like, well, maybe we weren't paying enough attention to this one. So then we swing back and often perhaps we swing back more than we ought to. And not necessarily that that, you know, that what we're looking for is something precisely in the middle. You and I have had conversations before about why I don't necessarily like the term balance, precisely because it implies scales with equal parts on both sides. And so I don't think that's what we're talking about here. It's not that we need 50% individualism and 50% society, but there is a real way in which both the individual is valuable and society is valuable, or as I like to talk about it, autonomy is a value and community is a value. And we do, I think, need a way to think about how do we integrate these values. And I love what you're talking here about the, the spiral approach of thinking of coming at it from both a bottom up and a top down perspective. So did, did you even want to say some more about that idea? Well, uh, just to um, comment on what you, you just said about the, the pendulum thing and that there's not necessarily like a sweet spot in the middle that's just like a set spot that we want to always be at. Um, you know, I, I think there are these, you know, feedback mechanisms sort of built into any complex adaptive system like this that, you know, at, where I think it's actually healthy that we're kind of swinging back and forth and, and maybe, you know, hopefully we're zeroing in around whatever the optimum would be at any given time, but that's, you know, always going to be a moving target and changing. So, you know, there's always going to be that, um, you know, continual, uh, like adjustment towards that. So it's, it's, yeah. So I, I think just, you don't want to think of it in terms of like some sort of like static 
ideal that you're aiming for because the whole point of uh, society is this very complex adapting thing. And, you know, and a lot of these things, like even, you know, like you're talking about health versus non-health or whatever, but, uh, you know, like health, health is sort of contextual. Like you said, if you're living in a 19th century novel, you know, like maybe you want to be consuming more arsenic than you otherwise would, but even there, like, you know, a poison, what constitutes a poison is, is, largely dose dependent. So all of these things are kind of relative and you, you always want to be, you know, kind of keeping that in mind. But, um, but yeah, as far as the, the relationship of end of the individual to society and um, the, the values of autonomy and community that you talked about, I think it's, it's interesting because that spiral, it seems like in some ways, we, we do swing back and forth between those, but we, it seems like we are actually growing in our appreciation and recognizing like from a historical perspective, you know, looking at this in, in historical uh, timescales, we're, we're actually growing in our perspective, maybe of both of those sides. We're actually increasing our range of recognizing the value of both ends of, of that spectrum. Because um, certainly like the, the, it's, it's more obvious that, well, like the, the the individual um, and the value of the individual and, and the sovereignty of the individual has been, you know, kind of increasingly recognized from the time of, you know, the beginning of recorded history through the Renaissance and uh, and then, you know, to the Enlightenment era and the founding of the United States. Um, and then you could say, well, maybe that's waned a little bit since then, which is kind of the, the point of your pro your project here. Uh, but um, you know, like in some ways. It seems like the the value of uh, community and society is also uh, kind of uh, recognized to a greater level than it was in the past as well. I think mm -hmm. people have, are just, you know, like I, I said earlier, you know, that people tend to look at these from one perspective or the other, but you know, at any given moment, they might do that. But I, I do think actually people in general have kind of an increasing awareness of, of both sides of this. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, in the last few decades, you've seen that with just the increasing awareness of, you know, that it's now it's almost taken for granted, like, if you put it in these terms that people would generally agree, like, well, of course, the goal isn't to like, make the individuals subservient to society or vice versa. But, you know, but for people to have these mutually beneficial win-win kind of relationships. Um, and so I think that's the goal that we're looking for. And that that is kind of the the simplest way to, to put, you know, the, the ideal uh, that we're trying to capture here. So I think, oh, sorry, there was a way that you put it in some of our other conversations that I think really captures that as well. Um, Sorry, I've lost my train of thought, but uh, I don't know if you want to pick up there. Yeah, well, I'll just pick up on some of the things that you're saying that I would love to comment on. So first, I think you're absolutely right. This idea of the, the dynamism of this, that there is no one static, sweet spot that... Mm -hmm for any given individual. Some people are more introverted, some people are more extroverted. So while we can say that autonomy and community are, are values for any individual, that different individuals will have 
different ways of integrating this that will be different. And then it can be different over the course of your lifetime. Uh, you know, there, there's certain times, for example, I know there've been times in my own life where sometimes I just need to be by myself. There, there's something that I'm really struggling with and just having too much feedback from other people. I just need to be by myself, process things in my own mind. And then there's other moments in my life when it's the exact opposite of that, when I, I really need support from other people and feedback from other people. So it's, it's not as though there's ever one perfect platonic static sweet spot that would be the same for all people or for one person at all times. And I think that there's probably a really interesting way to connect this even into evolution and the way that we need to adapt because circumstances are changing. And then as creators, we're affecting that environment. And so we need to, to have a model that allows us to think about these values in a way that can respond to the ways that the, the conditions surrounding us are continuously changing so that we we can adapt with these values and and figure out what what is sort of the optimum balance at any moment in time so that was one thing I wanted to say about the dynamism and then I definitely wanted to pick up on this idea of building the mutually win-win relationships because to me that that's a huge part of thinking about this model so if anybody's seen any of our other videos, you've probably heard me talk about, I, I have this mental model that I talk about of the, the creator-trader versus the predator-prey way of interacting with society. And just really briefly, predator-prey, this is the scarcity mindset approach to how we think about relationships and how we deal with resources. So it's scarcity in terms of the idea that we have limited resources that we're fighting over and that some people are going to win and some people are going to lose and that the way to survive is to be a predator and to prey on others. And to your point about, I think, how we've advanced on the historical timescale, that what we've come to recognize is that overall, individual human beings and humanity as a species, we thrive best when we say that this predator-prey approach to relationships and the world is morally wrong and we make it illegal and we shun people who don't do that and we embrace instead the creator-trader approach to relationships. And this is the abundance model. It's what recognizes that to tie back to human beings, we are the problem-solving animal, that that is how we survive and thrive is by creating solutions, ever greater and greater solutions to the, the, the problems that are there. That, that's been what I see as the history and the forward trajectory of progress. We come up with a new innovation. It's the 1.0. A lot of times an innovation will bring problems with it. And then we have to solve for those problems. And then, you know, we get the 2.0 version and the 3.0 version where we're just continuously iterating on solving problems. That's the creator aspect. And then trading with others, building these win-win relationships where we're able to specialize in our own aspects of problem solving and then voluntarily agree to trade amongst each other. And this gets into something that I know you've talked to me a lot about thinking about how society is complex and that that 
it's difficult, it's impossible really to have just one person doesn't have the omniscience to know and plan what would be best for all individuals. That there's something valuable about what emerges from a bunch of individuals coming up with their own mutually beneficial win-win relationships and what emerges from that, that model of freedom and the free market that we see when human beings start with this let's build win-win relationship trader approach to to relating to each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, and <laughs> I was rereading my comments on altruism grudge match before we started and I and I um, my main takeaway from my own earlier comments was uh, how was that it's not just, you know, because a lot of people, obviously, it seems like that just goes without saying almost it's so obvious that other people are, are a potential value to us. But that is such an understatement. And it's not just that other people are a potential value to us, it's that they are the greatest potential value to us. And it's precisely because of that uh, complexity that comes from living in a society of individuals that can specialize and exchange with each other that you know, we can create um, such higher levels of, of value that benefit all of us uh, than, you know, than we could just working by ourselves, you know, either you know, on a desert island or even just like in tandem with other people or in parallel with other people, but without like uh, you know, interacting in these sort of complex ways. So, and yeah, I, I just, um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought again. <laughs> my brain is getting a little bit slow, but. Uh... <laughs> no worries. Well, I'll pick up on something you said there that it's perhaps interesting how we think about competition and cooperation because competition is clearly a value, but the way I see it anyway is that competition is a value within this broader system that focuses on, I guess what you could call more cooperation, but at least this creator-trader framework. And then within the creator-trader framework, we want McDonald's competing with Burger King and Coke competing with Pepsi to see who can produce the product that will appeal to different people and, and you know, try to find the best way to utilize resources and you know, and, and I mean, the model obviously also, you know, makes it possible to develop all sorts of little niche markets as well. And that, that's part of the abundance that gets created. But that it's significant that the, the competition of Coke versus Pepsi is not the competition of, let's say, two nations warring against each other, where one is just going to wipe out and slaughter the other. It's a competition of problem solving within this wider framework that values trade and that is respecting individual rights. I don't know. I don't know what you think about that or if you have any thoughts about how that- well, I once, I can't remember where exactly, but I once heard capitalism defined as the economic system in which uh, people compete over who gets to collaborate with each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I thought that was really interesting because because uh, really like the essence of a free market is, you know, individuals coming together to form these win-win relationships. So competition is almost kind of like a byproduct. That's not really the point. That's just, you know, it's just one, uh, aspect of 
what's going on that you can kind of separate out for analysis. But really the core of it, the essence is people coming together to form these win-win relationships and, you know, specializing and exchanging and, uh, and thereby being able to create more value. And, you know, I think you've, we've seen like over the past couple of decades since, um, you know, 1776, which was not only the year that the United States was, uh, uh, you know, declared its independence, but also that was the year of the publication of uh, Adam Smith's On the Wealth of Nations. Mm -hmm. And and as we've seen the spread of, of uh, capitalism around the globe as sort of the dominant economic system, um, you know, the, the gains in, in human well-being that have just sort of followed in lockstep uh, just kind of speak for themselves now. And like the data uh, on that is just kind of incredible. Like if you go to, you know, ourworldanddata.com and you can look at, you know, you know, like in that past couple of centuries, you know, the average person's lifespan has more than doubled and people's access to education and uh, healthcare and all of these, these goods. Um, has, has just, uh, you know, increased exponentially. Um, and it just seems pretty clear that that is uh, a result of people being left free to have these kind of collaborative uh, interactions with each other. Because, you know, like the, the local exceptions to, to that general trend of progress have all been in places that have explicitly renounced that kind of uh, economic freedom, you know, like with the Soviet red lines and things like that. So, I, you reminded me too of something else I wanted to pick up on. On something else you said that even tying this idea of freedom in, into this idea that we are. You put it one way to me in a conversation. I don't remember exactly, but I want to say you described it as we're somehow like the super social being. Is that is that what you would say? That 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 even more than perhaps like other animals we see that are social beings, that human beings were like social to the max. Like, am I am I saying this correctly? How 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 would you want to say that? Uh, I don't I don't remember exactly how I put it before. I don't remember that that specific conversation, but uh, I would agree with that for sure. Like because I think you know our you know, when you look at it from an evolutionary or a historical perspective, you know, we, we just exhibit as a species, you know, we exhibit a much higher level of uh, social interaction and cooperation than, you know, than any other uh, animal. And I think that is um, just kind of a corollary of our, our conceptual level of consciousness that we, we can think in, in general principles and, and, uh, and we are this problem solving species. So I think that just is kind of goes along with that. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely, and that goes back to what I was saying before about, it's not just that other people are a potential value to us, it's they're the greatest potential value to us. It's, and we've, we've talked before about, you know, the goal isn't to live, you know, if, on this, on some desert island where you might be perfectly free, but, you know, that would not be a human existence that would, you know, even we've talked about like in literature where there have been examples of this where they kind of like take the individual out of society like Robinson Crusoe or, or the Tom Hanks movie Castaway you brought up one time um, you know their goal is always to, to rejoin society uh, it's not you know it's you know and, and it in a way or even like something more recent like say The Martian uh, you know the, the novel or the movie about the 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 astronaut who gets stranded on Mars and 
And so all of these, you know, are kind of highlighting the individual heroism of the, the person who is able to survive and, you know, meet his basic survival needs um, on his own in that kind of isolation without being part of society. But like nobody would call that the sort of flourishing life that they would aim for, right? I think you're absolutely right. And, and those, even in those examples, they, they show us how desperately human beings need other human beings. I, I just always think of Castaway where you know, Wilson, he has to create a, a beach ball that is another human being precisely because we need, we're built to need human connection. Uh, even at that deep emotional, spiritual level, let alone everything else. T to me, and, and I think this ties even to the point you were making before where as we're looking over the historical time scale, we see that perhaps we've been recognizing the value of both individualism and society, both of these. So, so to me, it's always been interesting, one, that so to start with society, that, that clearly we are social beings to start with, just the basic biology of you need two individuals, a male and a female, a sperm and an egg to come together to create a new individual. And then the fascinating thing to me about human beings is that we we're not like baby reptiles where we we come out of the the the, the their egg or our womb and we're just like you know little mini snakes that can just you know act like a, a full grown adult snake that as mammals we go through this long maturation uh, process. And for human beings, it's it's longer than any of the other mammals. And we need other animals, we need other, uh, you know, parents or, you know, caregivers to take care of us just to, to fully reach maturation. And it's always fascinating to me that even in our ability to be individuals. So I know when you and I talk about individualism and you were just mentioning how the, the, the significance of being, of, of the individual mind and of being a conceptual being. And it's interesting to me that what data shows us, I mean, I don't think anybody knows now exactly how language first emerged, but even as we look at examples of specific human beings, we see that if you are not born into a community where you are exposed to language, you don't develop language. You don't actually become a fully functional conceptual being with that ability to attain what you might call optimum individuality unless you are born into a society that gives you essentially a language, which, which to me is fascinating of how I think, and perhaps even already starts to show some of the spiral of how you know, the society and the individual come together. But then as you were pointing out, so you know, we, we need all of these social structures that then allow us to become individuals who are able to think, to problem solve. And then the best thing we can do with that is to work with others to, to, to take those ideas, to take our individual thinking and problem solving and decision-making and start to build and create things that ultimately help society as a whole and humanity as a whole starts to progress. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, no, I love that. That's a really great example. Um, yeah, and I, I totally agree um, about how, you know, it, it really is only in the context of society that we can um, fully 
um, live up to our you know potential and in, in, as individuals and um, that you know it really because it's you know like even all of the knowledge and things that we have that we rely on to to then uh, differentiate ourselves and and contribute something that maybe only we can um, that all rests on all of these other individual contributions that have come from all of the other people that have uh, you know in our society that have come before or and uh, so it, it really is like there is this complex interaction this spiral that it's like you know that that really the interest and I think this is something that I actually wrote in my original comments on on the other videos you know the the interests of the individual um, both largely comprise and are comprised by the the interests of the groups um, to which they belong and, and vice versa you know, the, the the group's uh, interests are are uh, comprised of all the individuals that make it up so it's you really can't separate it out it's it, yeah it's just by the nature of our species like you're saying it's just you know we, we really are this social solitary species to use the the term that i think uh you got from um, Ranofsky that I love. It is one of my favorite phrases from, from Jacob Ranofsky, the ascent of man that I'm, I'm quoting all the time. To, to my mind, it is the start, of, I think, of how, to me, that's that's the seed of how I think we're going to start to build what I think is a, a better approach to ethics. And, and certainly, I think, you know, Ayn Rand has observations that are valuable about the value of the individual that we want to incorporate into this. But I think we're definitely at a point where we want to go beyond that and, and, and kind of incorporate this this more holistic framework that thinks about how we are the social solitary and brings in our evolutionary heritage and what we know about our biological development, you know, with with these ideas of integrating the individual and the group. So maybe we can switch gears a little bit and tie this back to specifically the, the topic of altruism. And this was a something that came up recently that I already thought was interesting and maybe will help to, to clarify some, some certain points about what I have to say about altruism. So I heard a, a podcast recently with a prominent atheist who at one point in the conversation casually commented as though it were obvious and just a given that, uh, of course, as you might have put it, that we have a moral obligation to help the needy. And when he said that, that we have a moral obligation to help the needy, it was immediately interesting to me because personally, I would disagree with that statement. I don't think that we have a moral obligation to help the needy. But I do think that it is morally good to be empathetic, to be compassionate, to be concerned about other people's suffering, and to help those who are in need. And I think a lot of people would even see those as somewhat synonymous. So I thought maybe you and I could even start to right. disentangle what, what really is the distinction between these two ideas. And hopefully it gets us toward what I would hope would be the better moral position that recognizes that there is value in 
compassion, in empathy, in care, uh, but that this is something that is distinct from quote unquote altruism or even this idea of the moral obligation to help the needy. Did, did you have any thoughts about that to, to get us started? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting because um, I think a lot of people would look at that as, as being the same because in practice, it's like, well, if, uh, you know, you have an obligation to help the needy and you say, well, I, I don't feel like I should be obligated to, but I, but I think it's morally good to do that. Well, in what sense is it morally good if you're not obligated or what, what's the difference there? Um, and I, I have a similar reaction to you uh, that, you know, if somebody says, you know, you're, you're obligated to help uh, anyone else who is uh, in need that that uh, you are maybe in a position to to help in some way. My my immediate reaction is like, well, obligated, you know, by you know, like, in, what does that mean exactly? I mean, couldn't I I argue by the same token that everybody else owes me something? Like to me, there's like this sense of entitlement about that 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 I kind of don't like it. So I think maybe there's, maybe the distinction that we're getting at here has to do with motivation because it's like, you know, are we talking about obligation that comes, you know, like from society or are we talking about like being motivated uh, because you actually see the value in somebody and it's not just that you have like this unchosen duty to fulfill whether whether you want to or not or whether you it's in your own interest or not or whether you you see the value in the other person or not like that doesn't matter it's just you're supposed to help other people kind of period and I don't know like to me it just seems like that uh, that almost cheapens the the actual value in uh in the role that we can play in um, in, you know, doing good for other people. <laughs> it's like, if you're just doing it because you're supposed to, or you have to, <laughs> rather than because you want to, because you actually see them as another human being who is morally worthy of your consideration and uh yeah I, I don't know if that uh answers your question there, there's a lot there that i would agree with especially this idea of how it, it, it i the way i would phrase it is that it cheapens the sense of generosity which i think is a virtue that we would want to cultivate but one of the ways I even see this, like you brought up even the concept of duty. And this is one essay that I think Ayn Rand is actually spot on about. One of my favorite essays of her, she has one that's, it's about causality versus duty. And it was interesting to me that when I heard this phrase about the moral obligation to help the needy, that it came from someone who was an atheist, because I think this is a phrase that you might expect to hear from a more religious person where the duty would just come from God. It was in the sacred books and that's why it's there. But I think the, the question to ask would be, you know, well, what, like, where, what is this obligation? Where, where would an obligation come from? Where would a duty come from? And in, Ayn Rand's essay, she makes this great point that that 
to, to kind of dismiss the idea of duty and to focus instead on causality. That if there are things that we want to achieve or see affected in the world, that we have to focus on what are the causes. And she kind of puts it that there's a lot of ifs, that if we want to survive and thrive as human beings, that there are things that we then ought to do because it's in the nature of how reality works and how human beings work, that with this if, that we can then focus on the cause that would get us the effect. But then this then perhaps takes us into this question of then, well, what, what is the value of, of, of seeing other people as a value? And so, so I would say that we don't have this moral obligation. You know, I, I don't think that there's a, a higher being that somehow puts this duty onto us. But I would say precisely because of what you and I have already been discussing about the nature of human beings and how we are these social solitary creatures who do thrive when we we create these kinds of really abundant relationships with other people and that we are perhaps super social and that that we we don't even come close to reaching our potential of thriving without really rich relationships you know rich network of relationships with others who are creators and traders that if we start from that perspective then we can start to see why perhaps compassion and empathy with others starts to make sense and, and become a value. So, so even just the fact that if we know from ourselves what it is to suffer, that then we can see someone else's suffering and, and feel that empathy. And because we are problem solvers, that we would want to have a compassion that would want to help people rise above that suffering that they are experiencing. And to, to your point about how if there were some kind of obligation that it, it cheapens the sense of of how we would help like the first thing that pops to my mind is when you think about like the gifts you like have to buy for people and my, my impression too is those are always like the worst kinds of gifts to receive you know the yeah. gifts that you get because you know that like you know like you know like sometimes I was thinking like when I was a teacher and you know sometimes you know the kids you know their parents would tell them you have to give a gift to the teacher and so you know all the students give you a gift because they have to versus the kind of gift that comes because someone really does appreciate you, value you, love you, because they want to give you something in token of the good that they see in you. Those are the kinds of almost magical relationships that we want to have with other people. We want to be you know, the, the, the kind of person that creates those kinds of relationships with others, I would say. And that's the vision of human relationships that I think we want to put forward and, and start to build. Not the kind of view of relationships that sees things in terms of, well, you have this obligation and duty that you're just supposed to do. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the Ayn Rand uh, point that you mentioned about, you know, um, not having obligations that are just based on duty, but, uh, you know, recognizing causality in the sense of that if, if you want to achieve certain values, that you have to do that based on the recognition of certain facts. And I think, you know, the primary fact that we're talking about here, to go back to the previous part of our conversation, is just how other people are potentially the greatest value in our lives. And, 
and that doesn't mean that you that you have this you know kind of obligation to go around just helping people sort of indiscriminately in any kind of circumstances whenever you can like without uh you know regardless of, of what effect that might have on your other values in your life and, and kind of ignoring that context um and it doesn't mean that you know like your your primary goal in life should be to go around helping other people and finding you know ways of of you know exercising the virtue of charity or something like that um and it's not that you know charity uh isn't or can't be a good thing um but i i think of charity as sort of like secondary because it's it's really about it's generally about distributing wealth that's already been created but the the greatest value that we can be to other people is creating this society of kind of abundance that you talked about. And it's, so it's like, uh, it reminds me of this uh, saying that Peter, Peter Diamandis has that he always likes to say is, you know, if you want to become a billionaire, make a billion dollars, uh, help a billion people, like solve a problem that a billion other people have and figure out a way to economically scale it, you know, which is, you know, like what, people who have become billionaires like Bill Gates or somebody have done, you know, like by creating like an operating system like Windows or something. Um, and, you know, and then he can, he, you know, he can retire from Microsoft and go start the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and like uh, try to solve health problems for people in poorer parts of the world and things like that. And that's great. That's, you know, if, if that is what he, how he thinks he, the, he can get the greatest value out of, uh, his life right now, you know, that's fantastic. Um, but, you know, like, I think the greatest value that he's done was in creating this amazing software company and creating this whole software industry that, you know, actually now enables a lot of people to be able to do the other kind of charitable work that, that they do. So, um, you know, so I, I think, that's important to keep in mind is like, you know, it's to, to help other people doesn't necessarily mean just like going around um, seeking out people in need that you can just bestow your, your generosity onto. Like, and, and sometimes it's just, you know, what do I have a value to, to, that, you know, that would be of other value to other people that I can kind of contribute to the market economy. <laughs> like, uh, because, you know, like there are lots of charitable organizations that, you know, can, can provide, you know, cheap clothing or food to, to people who are in need of that. But, you know, somebody had to actually come up with ways to produce all of that food and clothing to begin with. And in this kind of abundance that, then it makes it possible for other people to make that available to other people, uh, you know, very affordably that, because, you know, like previously that just wouldn't have existed. And, and most people just lived in abject poverty compared to what we have now, you know. I love that quote from Peter Diamandis. And I agree a hundred percent with what you're talking about, about focusing on the creation aspect first. But I would recognize too that, in the society we've built that is a society of abundance, there is a role for thinking about distribution. And to, to my mind, I think that we would want a society with a really robust network of different 
nonprofit, socially purposed organizations. So one of the things that I've often said is one of the ways I feel that I've always agreed with many people on the left is that I absolutely do believe morally that we ought to have a very strong social safety net to help people in society. But where I find I really disagree with a lot of people on the left is that I see that a lot of people on the left just automatically assume that that social safety net is provided by the government, which means it's provided by force, which then just totally you know, ties into your point about sort of obligation and cheapening generosity and, you know, and, and obviously you know, what I've talked about with, you know, the creator trader versus the predator prey model, this is the whole point that we want to get rid of force from human relationships. But we want, I think, I think we morally do want people to be generous and to think about how to create you know, uh, what, what would be the equivalent of a social safety net? But I, I would agree with you that perhaps one of the first things you would think about in how you build that net is how do you think about creating abundance? To me, that's almost like if, if we're going to take this analogy, that's like the what the rope <laughs> that, that forms the actual net. Uh, and then we would want to layer on top of that, perhaps thinking about, okay, once we have all of these goods, then maybe we, we can think about, okay, what are ways that we can think about distributing the different goods to different people? Yeah. And then I just even want to tie this back to some of what we were saying before about even putting this in the evolutionary perspective of the way I see it, that the generosity is, is good because care is part of our nature as mammals. It, it, it's how we thrive. But if you even take it back to, to think about, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, the, the first human beings living in their small tribes, and you would think about you know, who are the needy in that situation. So the needy are certainly the young that we want to care for to help help them become mature, capable, flourishing, independent adults. The needy would be the old who I think we would care for in my, my sense of that, we would care for them in, in honor of them precisely because they had, the old had raised us. And then, you know, when they get to a point where they become weak and then need care, we care for them in honor of what it was that they made possible for us. And then I think we, you know, in, in that society too, there would be the people who would be sick or who would have, you know, come upon accidents. And we would want to care for those people because of, of a sense of solidarity and empathy. If we know from ourselves what it is to be sick or what it is to, to you know, have an accident happen to us, that, you know, that we would, you know, rely on other people's generosity and that, you know, then when we were in the position to offer generosity, that, that this helps. But one of the interesting things even about this scenario to me is that it also recognizes that resilience and strength are important. And to tie this back to something you said before about why you even hated the concept of obligation because it, it was presumed a kind of entitlement. And to me, that's a very important point to make that when we, I think, are helping the needy in a good sense, it's to help them to become strong or in recognition 
of their strength. If it's, if it's an older person, we want, we precisely want to help them to be not needy. <laughs> Part of how we want to help them is with the tools of resilience that help them to become strong again, you know, to, to the extent that that's possible. And that we want to include the value of strength in this vision of care and compassion. And it's certainly a problem I think we see in current society where, as you were pointing out, that you wouldn't want someone who just kind of makes their life to be about going out and finding people in need, that, that that's the precisely wrong way to think about this issue, that, that the value is being strong and healthy and capable and, you know, and independent. And that's the, the standard. And we don't want a society where people are just lazy and feel entitled and just live in a state of neediness. So that, and again, I think this is, you know, kind of combining two values. We want to combine the value of compassion with the value of strength and resilience. And I think, I think as we're even thinking about how we would put together a, a better moral morality, let's say, or a better ethical framework that we would think about integrating these values of compassion for neediness with the value of strength and resilience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I completely agree with you that you know, we want to live in the kind of society where people want to help those who are less fortunate than themselves, you know, through no fault of their own or just through the course of nature, like, you know, the elderly or something. Although, you know, and a lot of times, even though, you know, they may be physically uh, not as capable as, as when they were younger, like a lot of times, you know, the elderly may still have a lot of value to offer. Um, but even, yeah, just in honor of their, their, uh, their contributions and because, you know, like none of us would be here if it weren't for the older generation that came before us. And, um, but yeah, like you want to do that in a way that doesn't um, sort of instill the sense of perpetual victimhood <laughs> that people are just, you know, like our fate is just to constantly be needy and in need of help from other people or the state or, you know, like some paternalistic government or something. And I think there is sort of the danger of having that safety net be, um, you know, organized you know, too much from the top down of there being like a sort of moral hazard or, or like almost like the problem of the commons or something where it's like, well, if we just say, you know, the government should be responsible for meeting everybody's basic needs, um, then as individuals, it's like, you know, we don't have as much incentive beyond that to like, we don't, we don't have to care about that anymore because, you know, like somebody else is, is handling that. Right. Um, so I, you know, like, I think it's good for there to be organizations, like you said, that, um, you know, nonprofit and charitable organizations and things that do um, try to solve these kinds of problems for the, for uh, needier people. But I, I also think it's, you know, important to uh, can to want to contribute at an individual level, whether that's, you know, through contributing, you know, make voluntarily contributing to organizations like that, or just helping people, you know, in your local community, or, um, or, you know, like if you, if you do pursue a more, uh, 
the, like more of the path I was talking about before, like the Peter Diamandis thing, like help a billion people by, uh, or become a billionaire by helping a billion people. It's like, but then once, you know, you have uh, created that abundant value, then finding ways to, um, to be able to uh, help distribute that value to more people who maybe wouldn't necessarily be able to do it just through their own uh, effort because of whatever their circumstances are in life at the time or something like that. So, yeah. You're reminding me, one of the things I've also heard Peter Diamandis say when he talks about his optimism for the abundant future that we're living into, he often puts it in terms of the, he'll talk about how, you know, we're, we're bringing the internet so that you know, pretty soon every human being will be connected through the internet. And he'll phrase this in terms of that would be all of these other minds who are here to contribute, to be problem solvers. And maybe this just takes us full circle back to where we started with this value of being a problem solver. In my mind, that, that, that to this idea that that's what a human being is, perhaps what a human being adult is, but, but even children, that this is what, what is special and wonderful and allows us to thrive as human beings, our ability to be problem solvers. And so I think we could almost say that we want to put in place support systems that will help people who perhaps, you know, are not able to be problem solvers to help them to become better problem solvers, to bring them in into the fold of, of being able to be problem solvers who can contribute their problem solving to the world. And, and yes, you know, I'm, there, I'm sure there will always be cases of you know, people in comas and people who will have, you know, certain, uh, you know, diseases where, you know, there, there won't be, you know, any, you know, way for them to contribute and, one of the, the glories of, of having a society that has as much abundance as we've already created through the, the technological progress we've made in the 21st century is that we have so much abundance that we can care for those people. You can even think about how if this were even a couple of thousand years ago, that people who couldn't fend for themselves, they, they would have been left and abandoned precisely because there just weren't enough resources to be able to, to care for such people. That one of the benefits of having a society that creates abundance is that there is enough abundance to care for the few true cases of people who wouldn't be able to care for themselves. But that ultimately we would want to have a system that would be geared toward I would just even put it uh, like being an adult. We don't want to be perpetual children, you know, under the thumb of some paternalistic overlord. We want to all be able to, to rise to the level of being fully functional adults who make decisions for ourselves and, and build our own lives and figure out which relationships we want to pursue, who we want to collaborate with and that's the goal, I would say. But there is, in this model, a way of thinking about combining both the, the social and the individual. Yeah. And I, I like what you said about, you know, uh, Peter Diamandis talking about how bringing everybody online, we're, we're bringing in all these other potential problem solvers. Uh, you know, there's going to be 8 billion individuals, you know, on the in the next generation that uh, are all connected. But it's yeah, going back to what we were talking about before about it's it's specifically because these people will be potentially connected to everybody else that will make them uh, 
more able to, to be that kind of innovator or problem solver uh, because, you know, they're building on the ideas of, of everyone else that they now have access to, right? So it's, there's, a, there's a historian of innovation named Steven Johnson. He's written a bunch of books. Um, and he talks about what he calls innovation hubs where, you know, historically, like there would be, you know, major innovations will happen in specific uh, fields uh, in certain places because just because, you know, of the network effects of like, you know, well, somebody already like makes a major innovation in an area somewhere. So like, I think like one of the major examples he uses, you know, like the, the glass makers of like Florence or Venice or something in like the Renaissance or something. And, uh, and because like one person figures out some new process to make glass, well, now he's attracting more people to him in that area who are working on the same problem and able to, you know, build on it more or, or look at, you know, like Walt Disney, um, you know, when he started, uh, his company, I just, I just watched Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for the first time since I was a kid the other night. <laughs> and it's amazing. Like the, the history of, of Disney as a company is just kind of astonishing, but you know, Walt Disney And the technological advancement that Snow White was oh, for its day. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like it's unbelievable. Some of the uh, advances that he came up with and like, and everything that we have in the entertainment industry today, like all depends on uh, those innovations that he made in terms of combining, you know, live action photography and, and uh, animation and all of these things, which now like you can't even tell the difference anymore between like the CGI, the photorealistic CGI animation and, and the, uh, and the live action photography, but, um, and, and that was kind of like his vision, you know, like that, that he was going for from early on. And, but, you know, part of the reason that he was able to, to make that vision, you know, he set us that, that industry on the path to making that vision become a reality is because he attracted so many people and hired so many people who were also innovative thinkers in that field. Uh, to come work for him to do something um, as innovative as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was at the time. Um, so, and that, and, and, you know, when, when Peter Diamandis talks about all of these people coming online, basically what he's talking about is like the internet is, is turning the entire globe into one giant innovation hub, where now anybody anywhere uh, can connect with the ideas of anyone else anywhere else and, uh, and, and build you know, even faster and further than was ever possible before. So we're, so those kind of innovation hubs are just no longer going to be like locally restricted to, you know, you have to work in Silicon Valley, you know, if you want to make major innovations in the computer industry, like you maybe did 50 years ago when it was still young. Um, but, you know, like, yeah, that's just one example. I mean, like, it, it's really connecting everyone and that's just going to accelerate uh, the progress of, of creating that sort of abundant uh, reality that uh, that we've been talking about. So, I don't know. Do you think that's a good good place to wrap up? I think so. I was gonna say I've not heard of Stephen Johnson. I think you said his name was. I'm gonna have to check out this book. But I love this idea of the innovation hub. Maybe that's even how we'll start. You know, the the next iteration of thinking about what is our better ethical model and that it ought to include something like the innovation hub, which I think is precisely this, a, a group of people coming together, cooperating, 
trading, each of them being individualized problem solvers and creators, but recognizing that if they come together and trade and work together, that they can create something that benefits each of them and all of them much more so than anyone ever could on a desert island. What, what is the book? Do you remember off the top uh, of your head? He's got a whole bunch of books. I'm trying to remember the titles of the title of the specific one that uh, I got the idea of the innovation hub from. Let me just Google him real quick here and I can tell you. Uh, so, okay. Oh, so he had, he actually had a PBS series based on one of his books as well called How We Got to Now. Um, it was really good. Um, but I think the one that I was thinking of was a book called Where Good Ideas Come From, The Natural History of Innovation. Um, but he's he's written a whole bunch of other books and some several of them have been like bestsellers. So you, you might recognize some of the titles if you if you look at a list of his his books. I'm definitely gonna check that out. And maybe hopefully people who are watching and listening, maybe they've already even read it. They're maybe way ahead of me. And hopefully this is just a, a first start and thinking about how we build on the, the ethical philosophers who've come before us and the insights that we now have in biology and start to build a better ethical model. Yeah. Any last thoughts? Uh, no, I thank you. It was an interesting conversation as always, Joya. Yeah, thank you. And let's definitely plan to do this again sometime. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can become a member for free and join our 1776 Forward community on Locals.com. See you there.